Would you turn with me this morning again to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians, chapter 1. like to look at the three verses, verses 9, 10, and 11 of Philippians chapter 1. We're trying to progress through this book together each week, asking the Lord to teach us and to instruct us and to help us walk with Him. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that, now that's a, that's a phrase in the Greek language, it's hina, it is for the purpose of, this is my prayer and this is what I want to happen, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul has identified the authors earlier. He's given a Christian-flavored greeting He's sounded the note of thanksgiving for them and their fellowship. Now he comes to this place where he is going to pray a certain prayer for them. Let me read to you that prayer in the New Living Translation. Paul would say in that translation, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you'll keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day Christ returns. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. So the question I think for me arises, what kinds of things would I pray for as I think about my brothers and sisters here in Living Legacy? A fellow by the name of Philip Johnson asked this question in his commentary concerning that question. He says, what would you ask? If you could make any request at all to someone who had boundless resources. Imagine a tycoon businessman calling you into his boardroom and instead of firing you or even promoting you, he said, all my fortune is at your disposal. Ask for anything you want that money can buy. What would you ask for? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, better yet, if you were Solomon, newly established on the throne of Israel, And God came to you and said, ask what you want. It's yours. What would you request if you were Solomon? Or suppose the Lord promised to do whatever you wanted for the people that you love the most. Husband, wife, children, parents, brother, sister, boyfriend, girlfriend. What would you request for them? This is what's happening right here for Paul. He has an audience with the infinitely rich sovereign of the universe. And he can ask this king to give the most wonderful gift imaginable to his beloved spiritual children in Philippi. What will it be? Well, Paul asks God to give these Philippian believers overflowing love, abounding with discerning wisdom. And I think in these three verses, there are five things that are mentioned. Two of them are by by way of request, and three of them are the result or the outcome of that request being answered. You'll find this in verses 9, 10, and 11. 
He first of all prays that their love may abound. That word can also mean overflow more and more. Secondly, he wants this love that's overflowing to be fed by, governed by, and guided by knowledge and discernment. Thirdly, that they will prove or test, and then having tested it, approve things that are most excellent. Fourthly, he wants that it will be sincere and without offense, and that they will be filled with and manifest the fruit of their salvation to the praise and glory of God. So the two requests are that their love may abound, and that this love will be fed and governed and guided by knowledge and discernment. The result of that will be they will approve what is excellent, they will be sincere and without offense, and they will be filled with the fruit of the salvation to the praise and glory of God. Let's look at these individually. The first part of verse 9, please notice what he says. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, that it would overflow. Well, let's look at that negatively. What kind of love is Paul not wanting to increase? It's real, but he doesn't want it to increase to the exclusion of the other. Someone has said the modern romantic temperament regards love as an emotion with the heart as its organ. But in Scripture, Proverbs 23.7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In the Scripture, the heart thinks and plans. Christian love is not an emotion primarily. The emotions are the caboose. Too often they are the engine. They drive. They should never be the engine. They should be the caboose. I'm not negating feelings. Feelings are important, but they are always the result of volition or, or choices. True Christian love is a volition. It's choice. This was the common view of the church until relatively recently. Today, people are more influenced by Freud than they are by Augustine. One reason for insisting that Christian love is a choice is that God commands love. Emotions cannot be commanded. Even a fickle college student, a boy, a girl, they're in love. They could hardly obey a command to love someone else. Emotions cannot be commanded, but choices can. So it's not primarily this kind of love that, well, already is paraded. Cupid, draw back your bow and let your arrow go. Does that date me? Straight to my lover's heart for me. So Cupid's flying around with his bow and he's hitting the hearts and this flooding emotion comes. That oftentimes is the understanding of our culture. It's all around us. But the problem is it often consists only of something sweet, sentimental, and non-threatening. Popular opinion, popular culture understands love as, quote, a mellow emotion, a warm glow only associated with lovers walking hand in hand on the beach. We talk about being in love or falling in love. I wonder how do you fall out of love? I don't know. But we talk about that terminology. A relationship of mutual attraction, emotional give and take, showing affection to someone else who returns the favor. Now this kind of love, don't get me wrong, is important. Song of Solomon talks about this. And it's an integral part of a relationship. But it must never again be the engine. It's the caboose. There's a love that's more important than that, as Paul is talking about here. It's more about giving than getting. It's less about fuzzy feelings. It's costly. It's characterized by sacrifice, inconvenience, and very often heartache as we put others' needs before our own. 
There are four words in the Greek language for love. There's agape, which is this kind of love, which is often associated with God's love. Okay? There's a second word, and that is the word phileo. You've heard of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's a companion kind of love. There's another word in the Greek, storge, which is the love of human emotions. Just being human, you have these, like for a puppy or for things that just draw attention. And then finally, there is eros, or erotic, passionate love. Those four words. Here, the word is agape. And Paul wants that to be evident in their lives and their relationships. And he wants it to increase. Now, the, the point is this. It's not that it's absent. It's, it's there. It's present. But he wants it to abound. He wants it to continue to grow. It's, it's something he doesn't want them to get comfortable in or to take for granted, which is so often easy to do, is it not? To increase. It's kind of the same idea that Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he says, add to your faith. Don't let it get stagnant. Or Jude 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that does not mean that you have the ability to make God love you by doing something. It means keep yourself experiencing growing and growing and growing more in God's love for you. Experience that. This was really something that Paul had for other churches as well by way of desire. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of Jesus. In that same book, chapter 4, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you don't have any need that somebody writes to you about that. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But here it is. But we urge you, brothers, do it more and more and more and more. Let this love that God has planted in your heart, Romans chapter 5, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Let it keep growing. Don't take it for granted. Let it increase. Let it abound. Never get satisfied where you are on the love meter, as it were, with God and with others. Isn't it true that love for God, biblical love for God and others, is the supreme virtues of the Christian life? 1 John 3, we know that we have passed from death unto life. How? Because we love the brothers. Someone came to Jesus in Matthew 22. Ask him a question. Good master, what's the greatest commandment? And what was Jesus' answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then that concluding sentence, which we often leave out, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, we would not think sometimes that in the law and in the prophets we would find loving God and loving others, but if we search the Scriptures, we certainly will find that. They are the supreme virtue of the Christian life. So Paul says, first of all, I want your love to grow and increase and abound and overflow one for another. Coupled with that in verse 9, he says this, with knowledge and all discernment. So I think secondly, he's asking that this love will be fed by, governed by, and guided by knowledge and discernment. The love that Paul wishes for these Philippians to experience is different from the common idea. Not only because it consists primarily in giving rather than getting, but also because it is fed and governed by knowledge and all kinds of discernment. 
As someone has said, it is clear-sighted. It is wide open. It is open, open, open eyes. Sober-minded, as distinguished from something that we often hear about, love is blind. You ever heard that? Well, love is blind. This motto produces all kinds of trouble as the one who's in love sometimes refuses to see the warning signs pointed out by others. And it can be true among Christians as well, can it? But the kind of love we need is to be fed by and governed by truth. The Word of God. Two things he says here. Notice in verse 9. It should be governed by true knowledge and all discernment. The word true knowledge is the Greek word epigenosis. It has the idea of intensive, deep, spiritual knowledge only obtained through the Word of God. It is essential if we want to grow in our love one for another. We cannot know love by looking at our culture. It will always steer us wrong. We can only know the kind of love God wants us to have by looking in His Word, studying the character and the life of Jesus Christ. Dear folks, there's times when we need to know when it's time to cover love. Love covers a multitude of sins, Peter tells us. There's sometimes we need to just let it go and cover it over. Now, we don't ignore, but we cover it over. It's just not worth getting all bent out of shape over. But there's other times when we need to confront in love, don't we? How are we going to know when we're supposed to do that? What are the situations that arise when we need to put that into practice? The Word of God will give us that understanding. And in addition to that, he says, I want you to have it with insightful discernment. This word is only used here in the New Testament with a variation of it in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. I'm sure you've heard of John MacArthur. John MacArthur has written a book called Reckless Faith. And John is pleading for discernment among American Christians. Many have abandoned this crucial quality. He shows that we have become anti-intellectual, trusting in our feelings. And there are some movements, some denominations that are mostly feeling-oriented rather than truth-oriented. We've thrown scripture and sound reason to the wind. John defines discernment as, and I quote, the ability to understand, interpret, and apply truth skillfully. Discernment is something of the mind. It is cognitive. It is not feeling-oriented. Therefore, no one who spurns right doctrine or sound reason can ever be what we would call truly discerning and able to understand. Commenting on this particular text, John says, those who think of faith as the abandonment of reason cannot be discerning. Irrationality and discernment are polar opposites. When Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, he was affirming that true faith is rational. He also meant to suggest that knowledge and discernment go hand in hand with genuine spiritual growth. Biblical faith is rational, it's reasonable, it's intelligent, it makes good sense. And spiritual truth is to be rationally contemplated, examined logically, studied, analyzed, and employed as the only reliable basis for making judgments. 
We must be men and women of this book. You wonder why sometimes denominations and churches and pastors and Christians and organizations make such, and I want to be gracious here, dumb decisions, stupid decisions that are against the Word of God? It's because the Word of God is not governing the decision-making process. This is the Westminster and the Philadelphia Confession of Faith and the London Confession of Faith make it clear. The Scriptures are the only basis and rule of faith and practice. We must be men and women of the book. And if we're going to know what to love and when to love and how to love, this is Dr. Ruth ain't going to fly. Dr. Phil ain't going to fly. They got their opinions, but they're not based upon the scriptures. This tells us what we do. And Paul wants them to have this love to overflow and overflow, but also to be hemmed in by the truth of God's word as the foundation, the oversight, and the governing factor. Too often the mood today is, if you criticize anyone's doctrine or their personal life, no matter how unbiblical it may be, you're just not being loving. You're being too arrogant. You're not allowed to judge this person, and this is perhaps the most quoted verse of the unconverted. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. What does it say? Judge not that you be not judged. Who are you to judge me? People in the church say the same things, folks. Oh, you can't judge me. Really? Well, how come just a little bit below that, Jesus says, don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before swine. You've got to make a judgment about the dogs and the swine. No, that verse means this, I believe. It means don't judge their motive. Don't believe that you can look in their heart, that you have a crystal ball and can see inside and judge them based upon that. No, we can't judge that. But we are fruit inspectors, are we not? Didn't Jesus say the right kind of fruit hangs on the right kind of tree? That's the kind of tree it is. If they call themselves an orange tree and apples are hanging on it, there's something wrong. And further in that passage, Jesus says to beware of false prophets who come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. It takes a discerning sheep to see that this is not a fellow sheep whom we need to embrace, but a ravenous wolf we need to avoid. Biblical love cannot be divorced from the true knowledge of God and from the discernment between truth and error and right and wrong that comes from a careful knowledge of the Word of God. Mr. Johnson, who's written a commentary on Philippians, says this, Yes, Paul did warn the Corinthian believers about a loveless knowledge that breeds pride. But he also taught them love rejoices with the truth. True love loves truth. Seeing it clearly, speaking it lovingly, hearing it humbly, and defending it firmly. So in essence, here's what Paul is saying to these guys. I'm asking God to give you a love that acts for the other's well-being. A love that knows what others' well-being really is because you see people as they really are and you speak God's truth as it really is. Christ's love goes beyond good intentions, well-meant affections. It is characterized by accurate love and insightful discernment. It's wide open. How would you feel? You're not feeling well. You go to the doctor. You've been struggling with something for a long time. They do an MRI. And they find out you've got a serious disease. What kind of doctor would come into your room because they love you and tell you, oh, well, we saw something, but don't worry about it. 
It'll, it'll go away. We'll give you some aspirin. We'll give you some medicine. You'll be, you'll be fine. When in reality, there's something inside that's going to kill you. How would you feel about that person? As nice and loving as they may want to be, are they really loving you? Absolutely not. It is that kind of mentality that must govern our love one for another. We are not the KGB. We're not the Gestapo. We are to love each other, but we have to do it with discernment. And we need wisdom to know when to do what and where. And the Word of God gives us that wisdom. Paul loves these Philippians so much, and our Lord Jesus loves us so much, that the longing they have for us will overflow with this costly, insightful reflection of divine love. Love that sees and speaks the truth for others' eternal well-being. Love that grasps what must be done to bring healing, and love that is willing to do it. My question to you and to me is, do you want that kind of love? If that love is present in my life and in our fellowship, there are three things that should happen, and that's the next part of Philippians chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Look at verse 10 now. Here's the first result of that kind of love. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. The idea is somebody going to a shop, and I've seen this in India and in Egypt and other places, not so much here. Now, they've got some markets down in Lancaster, and they've got some, not, not as much there, but, but you go to these countries, and they've got these huge markets, and you'll see people walking through and just scurrying through stuff and separating, and they're, they're testing this and look at this, and they'll pick something up and say, that's what I want. They have sifted through the menage of things and come to what is the best choice for them. And they purchase that item because they have tested it. They have proven it to be what they want. We understand this, don't we? We go out and we go to the Ford dealership or if you want a really good car, you go to the Honda dealership. I'm a little prejudiced, but you know, when I was growing up, I lived in a city called Rockville. And we used to teasingly say that if you bought a Ford, it was found on the Rockville dump. Or fix or repair daily. If you have a Ford, I'm just teasing with you. Okay. But what do we do when we buy a car? We test drive, don't we? I hope so. In that day, they would test drive, as it were, oxen to see if they plowed well. And they would test these oxen and come to a conclusion as to which one was best. Folks, we Christians need to sift through and separate what is significant from the worthless. In our day-to-day -day lives, we must find the best and the most worthwhile. And what will happen is we will have a spiritual taste that is developed for things that are really important and be able to prioritize our lives and the things that we do and don't do. And he says, so that you will prove or test and approve things that are excellent. When it comes to love among Christians, this includes two things. Choices that conform to the scriptures and choices about the more important issues. Have you ever heard this phrase? I love it. I don't know if it's St. Augustine or Philip Schaff. Others have been given the credit for this, but it's this, and I like it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in everything, charity. Do you understand what that means? Okay. In those things that are essential, the virgin birth of Christ, this being the Word of God, the Trinity, etc., etc., there must be unity. And you're not unloving if somebody says, well, 
we just agree to disagree. Well, I'm sorry, we can disagree, but you're wrong. That's an essential thing. Okay? That's not being arrogant. If I say it arrogantly, or like I, I have the last word on knowledge, that's my fault and my sin. Okay? That's essentials. But in non-essentials, what do we have? Liberty. There are some things, and they're also called adiaphora. They're on the periphery. They're not worth splitting fellowship over. They're not worth badgering and beating other Christians over. Okay, we just disagree. Is it premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism? Or as a friend of mine said, it's panmillennialism. It's all going to pan out okay. Or he said one time, I'm, I'm a pro-millennialist. I'm for it. I mean, if you don't agree with me, oh, I teasingly say this sometimes, if you don't agree with me, come up later and apologize, I'll forgive you, okay? But truly, it's amazing the things that Christians divide over. And love is thrown to the wind. And let me tell you, the unconverted world sees that and they understand that. And they often say, if you think I want to be a part of that, you're crazy. I can go down to the bar on Saturday night and have more fellowship, quote, fellowship with those guys than I can in your church. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in everything, what? Charity. There's one of the greatest missing points. And remember what Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have the right doctrine. Come on now. Look at me with eyebrows like this. The way you misquoted that. Yes, I did. John's Gospel, it's recorded, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are true disciples of mine, true followers of mine, if you have love one for another. Too often in the church, a lack of discerning love where people major on the minors and split hairs when there's not even hair to split. And it leads to undermining the unity and the testimony of the gospel. Somebody says we need to learn not to sweat the small stuff. I have a new phrase. I'll just say it about mostly to teenagers. They're getting all bent out of shape. I said, go down to, go down to Unimart, buy a bag of ice and chill out. <laughs> chill out. Come on, it's not, it's not that important. And we need to have that kind of mentality quite often in our, in our fellowship one with another. Well, something else will happen. There's something else he says in verse 10 that will be a result of this. Notice, and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You'll be pure and blameless when Jesus comes again. The idea is we will be prepared to meet our Savior face to face. As John says in two different places, we will be unashamed and have confidence. Right now at the present, we are becoming more and more like Christ. We're becoming pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. God gives wise love not merely to impart effective skills in this life, but to prepare us for the day when Jesus comes again. Mr. Johnson goes on and says this, in today's permissive Western societies, such words as pure, blameless, and righteousness are easily dismissed as boring, nerdy, stodgy, dour, prissy, or even self-righteous and hypocritical. In Paul's day, things were not much different. Some of those strict Jews and even some Gentile strict ethicists 
We're alarmed at the culture's slide into debauchery, reckless self-indulgence, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the emperors themselves who set trends towards sensual experimentation and luxurious decadence for the society at large, just as today many rock stars and professional athletes send all the wrong signals to the fans who idolize them. Paul was boldly countercultural. He was not preoccupied over the latest fad that the Greco-Roman high society wanted to give to him. Why? What was it that kept Paul in this thing that he was doing? He knew that Jesus was coming. He was preparing himself for the day when if he lived long enough and Christ came, he would be prepared to meet him. There is coming a day, you know. Everyone's going to stand before God's throne they will be compelled to look into his soul-piercing eyes and to realize you can't hide anything from him. On that day, there will be people who will not have to squint or cringe away from the king's searching gaze. They will, as Paul says here, be pure and blameless. Now that word pure is translated here, sincere. It's translated pure in the ESV, but I think a better word would be sincere. Do you know what that word means? Huh? The word is an anglicized Latin word. It literally means without wax. It was used to translate a Greek word meaning sun-tested. It seems at first a little odd that there's no connection between the Greek and Latin terms, but oh, there is. In that day, they had a very delicate kind of porcelain. It was greatly valued and brought at a high price. Now, this porcelain was so fragile that it was only with the greatest difficulty that it could be fired in the kiln without being cracked. Dishonest dealers were in the habit of filling in those cracks with a pearly white wax that looked enough like the true porcelain to pass without being readily detected by the average person in the shop. If the wear was held up to the light, however, the wax at once became apparent as a dark seam. Honest Latin dealers would mark their perfect wares with these two words, sine sera, without wax. No cracks, no hypocrisy. This is the real deal. In the same manner, the Apostle Paul would have the saints tested by the sunlight of God's truth and holiness and be found to be without wax. That is, we would be straightforward and honorable and people of integrity in all of our dealings. Anything that savors of sham or hypocrisy is like the wax used to hide the imperfections in the porcelain. More than that, he says, without offense. The word literally means blameless. It doesn't mean sinless. It's talking here about the motives of a person's life. That your motives would be pure and honest before God and before man. Third result found in verse 11. Notice what he says. To be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now this matter of fruit and things growing and manifesting fruit in our lives is a metaphor that's well known to the scriptures. Psalm 1-3, Psalm 1-1, blessed is he who does not 
stand or sit or walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the sinners. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And what does verse 3 tell us? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth fruit in his season. Whatever he does will prosper. Same ideas in Jeremiah chapter 17. So this metaphor is something that they were familiar with, and so are we. It does include, I think, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. And notice where it comes from. Look at verse 11. How does it come? It comes through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. John 15, the matter of abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit. I think there's something here that we should just talk about for just a moment. This matter of it coming through Jesus Christ. Paul longs for God to give his spiritual children overflowing love, informed by truth and discernment, and the results of that will be what we've seen. It will enable them to value what is valuable, to reflect a blameless purity, and to enhance the glory that goes to God. So the question is, how does this happen? It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul has talked about Christ already in the first 11 verses. Seven times he talks about Jesus Christ. In the next few verses, he's going to speak about preaching Christ three times. Soon after, he's going to affirm for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Later on, he's going to report he has gladly discarded all of his past accomplishments for what reason? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now his only desire, as he says in chapter 3, is to know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in him, not having his own righteousness, but that which comes through Christ. Do you get the idea? It's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the avenue through whom God will answer Paul's prayer for his friends. Jesus is the conduit. Jesus is the wellspring. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's going to retell the story of Jesus. Who, in the form of God, didn't count it as something to grab a hold of or to grasp, but gave himself, humbled himself, even unto the point of death, and God has highly exalted him. When we trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, God declares we are forgiven, reconciled, accepted, and well-pleasing in his sight. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I don't want my righteousness anymore. I've discarded that. I've counted it as cow patties or dung. It's no good. It's not important. Rather, I want the righteous that comes through Christ. And the wonderful thing is, not only does he restore our relationship with himself, but he begins us on a lifelong project of transforming our character, making us eager to love others even as we have been loved by God in Christ. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. It's all because of what Christ has done and who he is. So Jesus is not only our example. He's our enlivener. He's our enabler to do this. And as we abide in Him, as we read His Word, as we have fellowship with Him, as we have communion with Him, He works in our hearts and gives us the kind of love that we need one for another. But if we absent ourselves from this Word, we absent ourselves from our prayer life, if we absent ourselves from a vital, growing relationship with Jesus Christ, you can be sure, whatever we call it, it won't be biblical love. And then this phrase, this particular author ends with, the more we discover how much we are loved by the Lord of the universe, 
the more we love him and want to show his love to others. That's a powerful statement. Women, I'm not going to pick on you, but I just want to remind you, men have the greater responsibility. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5? Wives, submit to your husbands. How? As to the Lord. That's the pattern. Husbands, how are we to love our wives? What's the model and pattern for us? As Christ loved the church. So if in any area of a marriage, either one of those things breaks down, barring all other things that can happen, generally speaking, it's because someone is not having a vital, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This fruit bearing that he talks about here in verse 11, I was reminded in my own mind that this continues from conversion even unto old age. Psalm 92 those that are planted in the house of God will bring forth fruit in their old. There's never a time when this fruit, this righteous fruit that's produced in us by our relationship with Jesus Christ that leads us to loving one another should ever be absent. It should be constantly growing more and more. And what's the final result of this? Well, it's the theme I've been trying to bring out each week. God receives all the glory and praise. And what does that lead to? Great joy great delight in the things of God and the people of God. Well, what do we say to these things, Christians? I think this is a wonderful model for praying for one another. As you get to know folks in this congregation, you react and have fellowship one with another and worship together and do things together. I think this is a great pattern to pray one for another. Lord, would you have brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so just overflow and abound with love more and more? And Lord, let that love be discerning. Let it be based upon your truth. Let it be wise and honoring to you. Why? So that they will have the spiritual ability to prove and test things that are excellent. They won't fall prey to the less superior, the inferior things. And Lord, so that they will live sincerely, they will live without wax, they'll be honest and not hypocritical, and live without offense until Jesus comes. They'll be ready to meet Him. And Lord, may they manifest the fruit of what You can do in their lives because of Jesus Christ, and You get all the glory and praise. I've never been to one of Your prayer meetings, so I can say this. In 50 years, most prayer meetings are, Lord, would you help Aunt Susie's toe get better? Would you help heal so-and-so's arm? Would you help? I, very few times have I been in a prayer meeting where the depth of spirituality and praying for another has risen below the surface more than an inch. You know why? And I put myself in the same place. Because we are so secular, so physical-oriented. We want what we want what we want. There's nothing wrong with praying for physical needs. Please don't get me wrong. Those are very important. But I think the priority should be the spiritual depth that we find in these verses, praying for one another. I really believe that if a congregation will pray these things in essence, in general speaking, on a consistent basis, God will move, God will work in people's lives, unconverted people will be converted and there'll be more joy than we can contain. I believe that. One other thing, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
Jesus said something to the Jews one day of his day, John chapter 5. He said this, I know that you don't have the love of God within you. And if you're here today and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you might have warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. But you don't have the love of God. But you can. I'll take you to the, one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible, John 3.16. You might see it hanging over the stands this evening at that game. You know what it is, don't you? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved. The love of God will change you and turn you inside out and upside down and radically alter your whole life by calling upon Jesus Christ, by believing that what He did on the cross, by believing that His sacrifice is sufficient for your sins. God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, will flood your heart with His love. You'll be a brand new creation. Old things will pass and all things will become new. Well, I pray that that'll happen. There's no greater thing in all of life than to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified and to have your life characterized by being loved by God, which enables you to love Him and to love others as He wants us to.